0: What we found out so far through James is that he really is challenging the notion that just what you say doesn't mean that's what you believe, it it needs to match what you do. And uh, if you were with us last week, he talked really about the idea of wisdom, that it's not just that you know a knowledge or you claim to be wise, but are you wise by what you do and how you do it? And he gave those seven characteristics of wisdom and a great test for ourselves to kind of find out, are we really being wise? And so James is continuing on that notion here now as we shift into chapter four about this idea of your, your face should match up what, what you do. And he's seeing some things that are being done that's questioning what, what you believe. He's running into this idea uh, of fights and quarrels. And we might ask ourselves the question, well, why are there even fights and quarrels in church? Well, why would there be these kind of conflicts that take place inside the church? Isn't the church supposed to be uh, this place where we all get along, and we all get together, and we just sit around a fire and we sing kumbaya? Like, isn't that what church is supposed to be? And if you know or if you've been around church for more than a week or so, you probably realize that's not always how it is. And it's a struggle for us. And we think, why? That just doesn't seem right. And so James is asking that same question. And as we shared this idea of conflict, it doesn't always have to be a negative it doesn't always have to be a, a a thing that we see and we have to be scared of because conflict can be good. It can actually build and strengthen. But we gotta we gotta realize that we gotta understand the, the 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 behind the why of this conflict. The thing we got to get rid of is the idea that, well, uh, you know, church is always going to be the perfect place. Even some people will say, well, we just got to get back to the early church. The early church did it all right. And then you look at the New Testament and you see Paul, especially like 1 Corinthians, just blasting what the church was doing because <laughs> they weren't getting it all right. There's never been a period of time within church history that there wasn't conflict. There wasn't quarrels and fighting. There's There's always been that in, in our existence because we have this fallen state that we still have in us that want to do what we want to do. This fighting, this quarrel, it's it's always going to be there, but James is going to bring to us some ideas maybe about why it's happening. And hopefully from that we can can choose or we can learn to to not get involved in it. Well, here we start, James chapter 4. He asks the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now, James is using a, a clear analogy of fighting, of a war. He, he's, he's talking about there's this battle and fight that's happening externally. But what James is now going to talk about is that there's something happening internally that can be causing some of those external fights. Now, we're not going to say every conflict, every fight, every quarrel is something that's happening internally to you. But what James is saying is that's a great place to start because I would argue a lot of them are because of the internal battles that we're all fighting. Specifically, what James is going to get into is this idea of desires or another way we say it is hedonism. You may have heard that phrase before. That hedonism is the concept that, that our pleasure is the great chief good in our life. It's the greatest thing we pursue. We can see it happening all around us from the idea of of entertainment to technology to money to to even to in the church when we get to the concept of, well, there's a good Christian. And someone thinks, wow, I feel good about being a good Christian, so I'm going to keep doing the things that make me feel good about being a good Christian and not from the source of I'm just being thankful for what God has given to me. You see, the the pleasure-seeking mentality is prevalent in in every aspect of of our existence. Jesus and Paul and, and Peter, they warned what happens when we make our pleasures our chief good, our chief goal. In fact, he even used it in that, that uh, parable of the seeds thrown out. And one of the seeds started to grow and started to show some life. And all of a sudden, the pleasures of this world choked it out. They began to, to, to seek their pleasures as their chief good. And they replaced the idea of God being that chief good. In fact, we've got to recognize, even before we <coughs> move too far, <coughs> we're not saying that pleasures is bad. We're not saying you should avoid all pleasures. In fact, what we recognize, even as a term that John Piper, I believe, termed it as a Christian hedonism. Now, it seems weird when you use that phrase, but what he's basically arguing is that if we put God as our chief good, if we put him as our chief goal, as it is in, in a lot of different creeds and, and a lot of different throughout the church history, our greatest goal, our greatest thing as man can do is to glorify God. Piper argue, if that's what we do, then what will flow from that? will be pleasures, that God intended pleasures to be part of the human experience, and that they have a proper place, but they fall in after we recognize that our chief goal is to glorify God. Now, a lot of times when we hear the chief goal of glorify God, we start thinking, well, I'm going to be a missionary living in a hut and having no pleasures. But in reality, there's something more, something truer, something more pure in the pleasures that God has for us. When we make him the chief goal. James' argument here now is that we've we've lost that. We've flipped that, or we replaced God as the chief goal, and now pleasures are the chief goal. And so that's what's causing a lot of fights and quarrels. That's what's happening externally, as internally we're wrestling and arguing with these things. We don't look inward, we then look outward. And we start arguing and fighting and, and getting into all these disagreements with stuff. And so this old nature, which Paul talks about, is battling within us, wanting to take control, wanting us to, to live in that, and it's pleasure-seeking. Adam and Eve, perfect example of it. They saw that the tree of good and, uh, of good and evil was, was good, and they had a pleasure, a desire to have it. Even though God said they should not be it, even though God said they should stay away from it, their desire, their pleasure overtook what God had deemed good and they chose it for themselves. This ongoing nature is what we wrestle, what we battle. And so James continues, he says, this desire that you do not have, <coughs> so you murder. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask, and you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend, it, or to spend it on your passions. James is saying, as he said in chapter 1, that when sin left unattended or that desire left unattended will grow into sin. And so James is saying the same thing here. Your passions are growing into murder. And your coveting is growing into taking what is not yours. And one of the direct results of what will happen with that is that you'll stop wanting to seek God and even go into prayer. Now, now how does this play out? Well, it simply plays, plays out by the fact is you know when you go to prayer that those desires and passions are not lining up with God's will. And so you, you, you feel that tension instead of, instead of recognizing that I should repent and, and turn away from those passions, you, you turn away from God. You don't want to talk to God anymore. Why am I going to talk to him? He's not going to give me what I want anyways. He's not a part of this, this situation. I need to get what's mine. I need to go after what I want. And so God just becomes something uh, as an obstacle, as some kind of uh, person that isn't going to help you. So why would I deal with him? So I'm going I'm to not even pray or I'm going to pray in a, a very robotic way. Even though that I have these passions and desires on my mind and in my heart, uh, I'm not even going to talk to God. And so James tells us this danger of this, uh, of what this happens and what plays out. And this lifestyle, is going to keep going on and you're going to keep finding out more and more that those passions, desires won't bring you that satisfaction you're looking for. That's one of the things that we can kind of allow to happen sometimes in people, not all times, not all situations, but in some times, it's okay for people to go find their passions and find out they're really not real they're really not going to give them the satisfaction that they're looking for. In fact, there's the cheap imitations that are happening all around us, and we have to recognize them for what they are. They're cheap imitations. There was a classic study that went on one time uh, that talked about male butterflies, And they would take male butterflies and female butterflies and the females would be uh, mating and trying to get the attention of the male butterflies. But then they also would put cardboard cutouts of butterflies next to the female butterflies that were a little bit bigger and a little bit more uh, colorful. And the male butterflies would keep going towards the cardboard cutouts instead of the real thing. Now, this is used oftentimes in describing what happens in pornography or other types of things like that, but it really paints that picture of how often we go after something that's cardboard instead of the real thing. I mean, how many times do we ha- have to, uh, you know, recognize, you know what, a, a, a fast food isn't going to satisfy me like a real steak is going to satisfy me. How many times do we have to realize that a good cold glass of water is going to give to me more than what I need than a, you know, a sugar-filled soda. I'm not just picking on those things. There's lots of things out there like that, but we oftentimes are just, just completely delusional on knowing what is the pleasure that we desire and want, and we go after the cheap version of it. And James is telling us this mindset, this idea is going to keep happening and it's going to lead to more and more sin and more and more pulling away from God and and, and turning away from him. So much so that now in verse 4, I mean, he just flat out tells us, you're an adulterous person. I love James because it's so practical. But I also love James because he's right in your face. (laughs) He's not sugarcoating any of this. He's literally now comparing you to a spouse that cheats on their their loved one. That, that That you are choosing these desires, rejecting God, and you are an adulterous person. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enemy with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or you just suppose that is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made <coughs> to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, this passage is loaded with a lot of, a lot of hard stuff, but good stuff. And we gotta recognize at the very beginning this adulterous people, that's what James is calling us of us that choose these passions over God. He, he's moving this now uh, from a war uh, and battle analogy into a, a marriage context and a marriage analogy. And he's saying that we are being an adulterous person and yet what God is saying, or what James is saying is that we can actually become enemies of God. I know this is kind of difficult because we, well, was James talking to, to the church? Was James talking to People that were pretending to be Christians, can a Christian really be an enemy of God? What about eternal salvation? Like, like all those things are, are important and we would look at that and I believe you can't lose your salvation. But I also believe in certain moments in specific times when you choose to live your life for the passions of this world, you are against the will of God. And when you're against the will of God, that, that makes you in that moment an enemy of what God is trying to do. What God is deemed good and you're choosing to place it, replace what God is doing with something else that's good, that's an enemy of God. Now again, the grand scope and we're going to see how God kind of handles all this and what he does with all this, but we have to own it for what it is. Whenever we place the chief good in our life of the pleasures of this world, it's an enemy of God. And so James continues, and he connects this idea now, and <clears throat> even this marriage relationship, even though we're enemies of God in this moment, God is provoked in jealousy for us. Now again, real quick, the jealousy, we're not talking about a controlling, manipulative, power-structured jealousy. We're talking about a, a longing and desire to be with the one that he loves, You see, the beautiful part about this and why I still believe this is talking to Christians and even in moments we can be enemies of God because now he pulls in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is within us and it dwells within us and its only desire is to be in fellowship with God the Father. That's what it desires to do. It wants to be one with God the Father and the Spirit is with us and we are part of God's family. And so when we are an adulterous enemy of God, we're pulling away from that. We're desiring to want something different. And and the the spirit within us grieves that. It, It wants to be connected to the Father. And so there's a burning jealousy of God that he wants what is his to be his. And in relationship with him. And so what does God do? He doesn't be a disgruntled uh, spouse and sit around and just wait for the other person to get their act together. He doesn't sit around and just say, well, you know, when they clean up and come back to me and they beg for forgiveness, then I guess I'll... He, He is actively pursuing us. He's pursuing us. That's why he talks about the idea that he comes after us in this form of giving to us grace. And the beauty of all this is that there's always enough grace that God has for us. Even though we have been adulterous, even though we are enemies of God, there's always enough grace because God is grace and he can't be what he's not. And in his jealousy, he's going to give us more and more grace. And yet James lets us remind us practically how this works out. That's what you love about James. He's always practical in this. And so it's not just this this abundance of grace that's given to everyone. Yes, it is given to everyone, but you still have to be willing to accept it. You still have to be willing to, as, as James says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You still have to be willing to jump into the pool. I mean, if you sit on the sidelines and refuse it, then that grace, maybe you might get a few kind of splashes on you because of common grace. But you're not going to experience the full grace of God because you are so proud and arrogant and you still want your pleasures. And so God is saying through James that those that humble themselves... Those that jump into the pool of grace that God is flowing down from above will receive this grace even though you're an adulterous person as an enemy of God. Have you ever ran into conversations with people and you didn't know how they're going to respond to you? Anyone ever tell you, hey, I I need to talk to you sometime this week? You're like, oh great, now my whole week's ruined. Thinking, what are they gonna say? What's gonna happen? What's going on? And we we just wrestle with it, we have anxiety over it, we can't sleep, we can't eat, we all these things because someone has said they have to have a conversation with you this week. Do you know when God says something like that, we can know what's gonna happen? <laughs> because He's promised to us grace. And every time we go to God, we're not have to sit there wondering, will God accept me this time? Will God forgive me this time? Will he welcome me back? Will, will, will God will God turn his back on me or is God going to punish me? Or is God going to hate me? All these types of worries we have in, in our regular relationships, we don't have to worry about God because what we know is that God is going to give grace to those who humble themselves. And even though we're adulterous people, he has this grace. And so what do we do? Do we just sit around and we just kind of wait for something to happen? Do we just sit around waiting for a moment to humble us? Or, or can, we, can we take an active part in this? Well, James, again, gives us some very practical steps. Verse 7, he says, Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. James, again, doesn't hold back. He reminds us again we're sinners, we're double-minded. Reminds us how we've lived, but there's something we can do. And in that, James tells us in the main emphasis is submit yourself to God. Or maybe another way you can think of it is surrender yourself to God. Recognize, as Jesus said in the Beatitudes, that you are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who who, who recognize that poor in spirit, that they are bankrupt before God. Even as a believer, we've got to continually, daily remind ourselves to surrender ourselves to God. Submit to him that he is our greatest chief joy that we will find when we give glory to him. And that everything else flows from that point. Even as God's, uh, you know, the, the, the prayer, the Lord's prayer that we maybe learned as a kid, is, it is Lord, not my will be done, but thy will be done. This is a daily reminder that we have to do. And then James gives us some very practical things. I want to emphasize them on kind of the idea of our feet, hands, and, and our mind. He says, first of all, <clears throat> that we have to resist the devil and draw near to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We've got to recognize wherever our feet are pointed is the direction we're going to head. I know you can walk backwards and moonwalk, all that, whatever. You know what I mean. Wherever your feet are pointed, that's where you're going to head. And if you find your feet are constantly being pointed towards the desires and the passions of this world, then you are not resisting the devil. You're playing on the devil's playground. And he's going to win because he knows all the tricks and he has all the tools, he has every aspect to do that and he's already got you captivated because your feet are planted toward them. James says, "Turn your feet to God. Draw near to him." Somehow, some way, wire your days so that your feet are constantly reminded to pull towards God and not towards this life and this world. James goes on and says, "Basically clean, cleanse your hands and purify cleanse your hands you sinners and purify your hearts so you, you're double minded there, there's something about our hands and the activities that we do and so it's not only just mentally and our, our feet being pointed somewhere but it's what we actually do it's, it's you know, the, the old idea that our, our hands are, are the things that are going to get you in trouble I remember speaking to a police officer one time and saying that they would teach you that hands kill that's why they tell you to put your hands up because it's, it's hands, if it's in a pocket behind the back, hands are what can, can kill you, so, so they want to see your hands. Well, hands, in, in a spiritual sense, are the activities that we do. And, and James is saying there's a, there's a spiritual cleansing of just what we do matters to, to God. And we have to make sure what we do is, is purified in that. The third part he talks about is our mind. And it may sound weird at first, but it makes sense in the context. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I think what James is talking about in the context of this idea of passions is we've got we to gotta turn even our mindset upside down from what we thought was joy to recognizing that's what causes us the mourning and the griefing. To recognize that the very thing we thought was going to bring us the happiness is actually going to entrap us. That the devil comes to lie, kill, steal, and destroy, but the good shepherd come to give us life. And so James is saying there, there has to be a mentality shift. It's like that moment. Have you, ever, have you ever, you know, I remember many times in my life just, you know, realizing I was doing something really bad health-wise. And I stopped doing that, whether it was staying up too late or whether it was not exercising enough or not drinking enough water. all and you realize oh man I've been doing this now I need to do this and you start doing the good stuff and you realize wait a second why was I ever doing that stuff before because this is what my body really needs this is what's good for me and this is that sense that James is talking about when we recognize that in God we want everything that we're seeking when we make him the chief good in our life why would I ever want to go back to something else and so then finally James doubles down and he says, humble yourself and he will lift you up. Humble yourself and he will lift you up. Isn't that just, again, just, a, just such an encouragement that we can kind of end even on this topic and this thought. That God is more than capable, more than willing, more than desirable for you. That if you surrender to him, And humble yourself. He will lift you up. You know, as much as James wants to be blunt and and, and right in your face, and he wants to call it for what it is, he also gives us great hope. And so if you're here this morning, even if you claim to say you know God and that Jesus is your Savior, there might be some, some, some grieving and jealousy taking place in your spirit right now because... You know that your, your heart has gone towards the other passions. You know that your feet and your hands have been given to something else. And that spirit is grieving and jealous and it wants to be connected to God. And we have to maybe recognize even in this moment that I've been an adulterous person. That I need a savior. And I need his jealousy and grace that comes upon me. And I'm not too proud to stand on my own. I'm not too proud to reject it. But I humble myself and surrender to him.